Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the start of another brand new week on Political Rewind. Thank all of you for uh, my thanks to all of you for joining us uh, today. I hope you had a good weekend. Dreary kind of weather out there for much of the state. Lots of rain and clouds. Um, but uh, and that's continuing today here in Atlanta. At least I'm looking out the window and it's kind of cloudy and very humid. So um, not the greatest weather to start off uh, uh, the week, but. But we have lots of great political news to talk about with uh, the best panel I could ask for uh, to begin another week on Political Rewind. That includes Patricia Murphy, my Monday partner on the show from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read her column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and she oversees uh, the jolt at AJC.com. Patricia, actually, uh, we're going to talk about two of the columns you've published in the last basically week during the show today. So thanks for giving us some fodder for a discussion as the show goes on today. Oh, it's always my pleasure to help a program politically rewind. <laughs> well, thank you for talking about them, Bill. It's not worth writing them if nobody reads them. <laughs> oh, I think you get read plenty. Uh, Leo Smith is uh, back with us. He's a Republican consultant, used to work with the state Republican Party, and now is the uh, founder and president, CEO of uh, Engage Futures, a government relations group, uh, but a group which also works on trying to bring people together, disparate people together around issues they can find some commonality in. Hi, Leo. Hello, Bill. It's great to be with you all, with Patricia and Dr. Gillespie. What a great panel that you got. I hope I can hold up the rear today. I, we all are hoping for that, Leo. We're sure you'll be fine. <laughs> and <laughs> Professor Andrew Gillespie is uh, here, of course, political science professor at Emory University and the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Hi, hi Andra. Hey, Andra, are classes getting going in, at Emory? I haven't paid attention to when what your schedule looks like. At 10.15, the freshmen walk through a gate so that they can do their Coca-Cola toast, if you know anything about Emory traditions, and classes start on Wednesday. Oh, terrific. All right. Well, um, things getting going again at universities and schools across the state. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Georgia, for a variety of reasons, has really kept the federal courts very busy in recent days, and there are a number of significant decisions that uh, we are going to talk about on the show today. And Patricia, I'd really like to start with the decision by a federal judge, Lisa Godby Wood, in the Southern District of Georgia, who ruled that Governor Kemp's plan for a limited expansion of Medicaid, coupled with a work requirement, could go forward. Just a little background, and then I'd love for you to weigh in. Um, uh, the governor had asked for a waiver to allow this program to go forward when Trump was still in office. Uh, President Trump's administration gave him that approval. 
Uh, but when the Biden administration came in, they put it on hold. They were not as enthusiastic about it. Uh, Lisa Godbey Wood said, well, uh, really, the Biden administration had no right to uh, overturn what the Trump administration had already done. And so it's going to move forward. And of course, Stacey Abrams has always made full expansion of Medicaid one of the most important planks in her um, uh, campaigns, both in 2018 and now. And so this decision is going to put Medicaid right back in the center, in many ways, of the gubernatorial campaign. Patricia? Yes, it absolutely will. And this has been a, um, a, a clash between these two candidates for as long as they have been candidates, to be honest with you. Georgia is one of 12 states that have not um, expanded Medicaid under a federal program that offers to pay most of the bill, but not all of the bill. And so Georgia Republicans have said in, in the out years that is going to be financially crippling to states and it's not something they want to commit to. And so Governor Kemp put forward this proposal that would cover about 50,000 Georgians with a work requirement to work up to 80 hours, I guess a minimum actually of 80 hours a month or do other activities that qualify for that. Um, and the judge's ruling was really interesting because the Biden administration had turned down that application based on COVID-19 and saying that those factors would make it too hard for people to satisfy the requirements. And she said that was, her words were arbitrary and capricious and said that just because it's not a big enough um, expansion in some people's opinion, it still would cover up to 50,000 Georgians or so um, out of about six to 700,000 who could be covered. So she said just because it is modest doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And so she's let it go forward. It's a huge victory for Brian Kemp and Republicans. Um, Andra, I, it, it's not really lost in all of this because Patricia's already mentioned it, but um, I think to some extent uh, the, the uh, news around this hasn't paid quite as much attention to the work requirement as it has to the fact this is just a very limited expansion. And as Patricia points out, there are hundreds of thousands of Georgians who uh, poorer Georgians who have no medical coverage and who cannot be covered under this plan. But that work requirement is an important part of this as well, Andra. Well, yeah, I mean, it, so there's two parts to this. So the, the political part and the strategy uh, for Governor Kemp is, is that by expanding Medicaid in some way, shape, or form, it actually undercuts Stacey Abrams' argument that Brian uh, Kemp is, is, you know, derelict in his duty to provide for needy Georgians. And it's trying to undermine her uh, populist uh, approach to trying to talk about bread and butter issues. So it takes something away that she was trying to gain a footing with. The framing part of this, um, you know, we could hearken back to the discussion about welfare reform in the 1990s, and we could hearken back to earlier discussions, um, you know, in the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan's invocation of the welfare queen, sort of this idea that poor people are lazy and that's why they're poor. Um, and so I think that's the part that's going to be troubling um, to people on the left, because quiet as kept, most poor people work. They actually, in terms of hours, are probably putting in more hours than other people who are making the median or who have more white-collar jobs. So, um, uh, you know, I, I think that that's the part where there's some people who are going to take offense to the characterization of people who are poor not working. And then there's also the issue of what actually counts as labor. So if somebody is in a position where 
They actually have to do a lot of household labor um, in order to make their house work. They're taking care of elders. They're taking care of, of young children. Um, what does that mean? And does that actually qualify as work or actively seeking employment as well? And so those are our debates that we've had for a long period of time that, you know, have long implicated sort of our ideas about race, gender, and who is actually deserving of benefits. Um, Leo, the work requirement portion of this um, has already been turned to courts across the country in, in cases where this has been uh, uh, before the courts have uh, said that it's illegal to uh, have a work requirement. So I, I assume that there is a challenge ahead still as to whether that work requirement uh, will, in fact, pa pass muster. Uh, at the same time, the Kemp administration argues that it's a broader uh, matter than just a work requirement. It can be volunteer service. It can be other things aside from work. And they think because of that, they may be safe. We have to remember that this has long been a conservative approach, a conservative argument that the dignity of work adds value, not just to the state digest, I mean, to the tax digest, but also adds value to the culture of a state, um, people's uh, self-esteem. And that, that's part of the argument that Governor Deal made when he was against uh, the exchange expansion. And that continues to be with Kemp. But Kemp is offering, you know, part partial um, innovations towards getting more Georgians covered. And this thing has become a political chess match um, by sort of picking on little pieces, even as more people are getting solutions by uh, Governor Kemp. Dr. Gillespie pointed out well, that is, is smart by several states, including Georgia now, to take this argument off the, the plate when it comes to the political context. And certainly you'll find that there are fewer and fewer Republican pundits, Bill, who will come on and talk in support of Georgia not having any participation in these changes. So uh, uh, certainly I think Kemp uh, is starting to say, let us have innovative ways we want to make sure that it's sustainable. We want to make sure that we maintain people's dignity and don't create dependency state. And we want to make sure that if we have, as uh, uh, Patricia Murphy alluded to, if we have a change in the federal government structure and they decide, well, we're no longer going to send you federal funds for this, that states aren't left on the hook for something they can't afford. So, Patricia, that, that's why this argument, everything Leo just said is, is part of what this argument uh, is going to be about as uh, Kemp and Abrams camps of go back and forth on this. Because what I did hear in some of Leo's comments is what Andrew Gillespie was talking about. Uh, the Republicans don't want a dependency uh, state. They don't want a state in which people kind of sit around and get benefits uh, without having to do anything exchange for them. And I, I'm not sure Leo really meant it to be uh, that stark, but, uh, but in fact, that is an, a Republican argument about this, Patricia. It is. I think I, I personally would like to see the data. I'm sure it's out there, so I'll go digging for it today on who exactly this population is. Um, right now, Medicaid does cover the poorest Georgians. Um, there is a gap between what between who can afford insurance, between those who already have Medicaid and those who cannot afford even subsidized um, uh, premiums on the Obamacare exchange. And so there's this big gap 
of Georgians in the middle who aren't uh, poor enough, so to speak, uh, not to qualify for Medicaid, but then make too much um, in order to qualify for subsidies. And so there's this huge chunk of uninsured Georgians. Um, and so um, are those people, in fact, not working jobs? Um, I don't know that that's the case. We have a lot of people who we talk about as being the working poor um, who simply work hourly jobs, multiple hourly jobs, um, but don't have enough money. Um, they certainly don't qualify for benefits by any large employer. So um, I think it's going to be really important as Republicans message this in an attempt to keep those sort of moderate voters um, who are considering voting for Brian Kemp on their side. Who are we talking about here? Um, but I do think it, uh, to Andre's point, it does give the Kemp administration a way to say, hey, we have expanded Medicaid. It just isn't a full expansion as Democrats are really pushing very hard for. Leo, I want to ask you a question about this. And then, Andre, I'd love to uh, get you back into this conversation. Uh, so one of the arguments Republicans make is that if there are as many as 400,000 Georgians who would be covered by a full expansion of Medicaid, which seems to be uh, the number, uh, the state ha- is going to have to pay 10% of their coverage. The feds pick up uh, the rest. And, and Republicans argue that's a lot of money coming out of a state budget, and it's one of the reasons that they have expressed concern about a full expansion, despite the fact the feds continue to find incentives to give more and more federal dollars toward uh, 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 Medicaid per person in each state. Leo? No, I mean, that, that is the sustainability question from Republicans who are fiscally conservative and who worry about, again, a change in administration that could leave us on the hook for the entire bill. But uh, yeah, 10% is a lot. And as the state uh, revenue projections have been in very, very good shape, uh, it's getting harder to argue against that. It certainly is. And I think we're losing Republican strategists and consultants who continue to hold the line on that. And you're starting to see some movement amongst conservatives, even in the Georgia state legislature, that this one may be something we can afford. And now let's look at just fighting for the, our own innovative approach to it so that we can at least have some state determination on it rather than just uh, Biden says no, so therefore you can't go. You know, I, I think that there's a little bit of short-sightedness in thinking about this. So, one, as Leo mentioned, we have surpluses right now, so it's not like we can't afford it. Um, two, we're only being asked to cover 10%. Third, this is an investment in people's health. So when people don't have health care, they usually wait until something catastrophic happens to show up, and then they require indigent care in hospitals uh, that can barely afford to take care of them. So it may make sense to invest in the infrastructure, if you will, of healthcare now, because people who go to the doctor regularly may catch big things before they actually metastasize and get bigger um, and untreatable. And it also may help people be able to lead healthier lives so that they don't actually put as many demands on the system as they would later when they all of a sudden have chronic diseases because uh, they haven't been able to see a doctor in 20 years makes a really similar argument on the campaign trail to what uh, Andre just said about sort of an investment in people's health. And she also says that it's really to expand Medicaid would be an investment in Georgia's especially rural communities, where if you had a network of hundreds of thousands of more people paying 
um, their insurance bills, paying their hospital bills and uh, sort of an insurance pro program to cover those costs, you would be hiring um, tens of thousands of nurses, doctors, um, professionals in those hospitals and also keep rural hospitals open, which are closing um, more and more because they simply don't have the population of paying patients who can afford to keep those hospitals going. Um, you know, Leo, it occurs to me that um, uh, this fits into, and, and both Andre and Patricia uh, uh, mentioned it in a more general way, we lost 38,000 people to COVID in the state of Georgia. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about the Kemp campaign is that they celebrate the fact that he was able to open the state early. We were back to business before most other states. Um, I haven't heard a lot of Democratic um, response on the other side, and maybe I just have missed it, that um, that reopening contributed to 38,000 deaths here. And, Leo, um, certainly uh, COVID, we know from the data, um, hit hardest in poor communities relating to what Andra talked about. If you can't afford to get health care, don't have a doctor, you're likely to suffer more uh, health consequences. And that's precisely what happened uh, in the pandemic, Leo. No, certainly we saw that the poor were less resilient against um, this because of the lack of options for, for treatment and care. And rural Georgia, of course, has suffered that with the dwindling population in rural Georgia and therefore the lack of hospital services uh, in, in rural Georgia. I mean, you can't really sustain and build, build and sustain hospitals if there's no population. So the governor's approach has been, um, from what I see, uh, first, let's get the economic development initiatives going in rural Georgia so that we can maintain the population. Um, it is not dwindling because we don't have hospitals. It's dwindling because there are no jobs there. So, so let's work on the jobs piece. And then, therefore, when economic prosperity comes to those areas, then we'll also have better services in general for those areas. Um, it is a nuanced thing. It's a chicken before or the egg kind of problem. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's move on. We'll certainly watch how this becomes an issue, a bigger issue, and how both sides play this in uh, the gubernatorial race. But I want to talk about another federal ruling at, that just came down. Um, and Patricia, you actually wrote a column that really relates to the ruling, although your column came out before the ruling was finalized. J.P. Booley uh, ruled this week that the Georgia law forbidding distribution of food, or, food and water to voters who were in line at polling places will remain effect in November. He, he didn't rule on the larger question of whether the law is legal or not, I think I'm correct in saying, but he said that we're too close to the November election to make a change in uh, this law. There are people who think this is a practice that has is cruel and uh, unnecessary. So respond to that, and, and, and let's all talk about that, and then I want to talk about the column that you wrote that relates to this very specifically. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. He didn't uh, really get to the point about the underlying challenge to the law itself, but he did say now that we are within this window, this close to November, he doesn't want to go in and noodle with SB 202. And so it looks like this is something that's going to be 
substantively dealt with um, at a later date. Um, but I did write a column about uh, this question specifically of whether you can um, offer food and water to Georgians at the polls. And I compared that to this practice that we've seen on the campaign trail in this cycle in particular of campaign offering gift cards, $50 gift cards of groceries and gas to voters. Um, you don't have to say who you're going to vote for, but they, you know, it's a lots of signage. Herschel Walker's Super PAC is doing it. Um, Americans for Prosperity is doing it, which I found ironic. I'm giving out just $50 of stuff. <laughs> um, so you can give away $50 of stuff, but you can't give anybody a bottle of water. I just think there's just an inconsistency and level of hypocrisy in this. Um, just, just let somebody have some water. I don't understand this. I think it's uh, not a good choice on lawmakers' part. Well, yeah, and Andra, I, the, this notion of I, I, I always I thought this was an odd and questionable practice when we first learned that the Walker folks were setting up in gas stations and handing out these uh, coupons for gas. As Patricia points out. You didn't have to make a commitment that you were going to vote for Herschel Walker, but they did ask you to sign some, sign up in some way. Maybe you gave them your email address, your telephone number, or whatever. Um, and then they did it in grocery stores. And it just feels like a practice that's questionable in many ways. Um, so a couple of things. One, I, I think if I, if I recall correctly, that the Herschel Walker gas giveaway was actually done by a PAC and not the campaign. Um, yes. Yes. And yes. Uh, and then I think the distinction here is what is happening um, on Election Day at a polling site versus what's happening elsewhere. Um, and uh, so when I like the when I first started, like, hanging out on campaigns, thinking about them, writing about them. It was in Newark, New Jersey um, in 2002. And I remember hearing the rumors that Sharp James was buying people like, you know, $100 bags of groceries. Um, and that's how he was incurring support. Um, and and so this is the first time Cory Booker ran against him and lost. And, you know, Booker campaigns, and this is actually documented in the, in the uh, documentary Street Fight, you know, uh, they were paying attention to the quality, uh, voters are paying attention to the quality of the Mother's Day card. And if you had an event at a senior building, you had to have a full hot breakfast. Um, and if your breakfast was not as good as like what the Sharp people were doing, then it was a problem. Um, even uh, election poll day workers, because I can tell you there was a fiasco where we got cheese and really crusty bread sandwiches and the poll workers were kicked <laughs> off. Um, and they should have been because, like, those sandwiches were terrible. Um, and, like, that's so viscerally remembering that 20 years later. Um, and, and, and so, you know, there has always been uh, this element of, of, of using these types of provisions as a way to open the door to get favor to curry favor. And you understand that people remember these kinds of things later on. So it, it's not um, surprising because it doesn't look directly like a quid pro quo or because it looks like a loophole, it's been allowed to, to persist. And then I think we need to ask ourselves if we're comfortable with this. And if not, then there needs to be some type of bipartisan move for, move for everybody to agree. You, you know, shouldn't be buying gift cards for people or you shouldn't be buying food for people or you shouldn't be giving people like, you know, tickets to Beyonce and Jay-Z concerts. Right. Like the Obama campaign did that one in 2008. So, uh, you know, in, in order to do that. So, I mean, these these things happen as part of and parcel of our politics. Leo. 
I mean, then there are real things that happen in the field of campaigns. And it is true that the Attorney General of Georgia, Mark Meese, recovered it, I believe, Patricia. Um, you know, there were candidates who were under investigation for handing out, according to the law as described, gifts in the line as a candidate on election day. So that's a real issue that the state and the Secretary of State had to respond to, and they referred that on to the Attorney General. So there are real things that actually do happen where <laughs> these lines get crossed. Um, and of course, then one has to argue as SB 202 then sort of elucidated on, well, what is a gift? What isn't a gift? So to the public, they hear, he gave out water. Well, is that a gift? Well, is anything given to you that you didn't buy is a kind of a gift in some terms. So, you know, there are real things happening, and we can't sort of act as though that Senate Bill 202 was just kind of like punitive for no reason, that there are actual things that they're trying to address. I, I think it's fascinating, Patricia, to think about all of the ways, and, and you know, Andra really uh, uh, brought them forward in terms of how, how much of this has been done historically in elections. The first time, Patricia, I heard the phrase walk around money. It was back in my days in Chicago when it was Democratic aldermen who gave walk around money uh, to voters to get them to go to the polls and cast ballots. Uh, it's happened in Georgia as well, I think, um, and in other states. So this is a time honored, somewhat questionable tradition, Patricia. Well, for sure. Um, I think there is a way to narrowly tailor something so that if a voter was in distress, uh, somebody could give them a bottle of water in a four-hour line and not risk a misdemeanor. Um, however, yeah. of course, I mean, walking around many, I think probably was perfected in Georgia and sent north to Chicago. I mean, that was a democratic, um, you know, just rule of the road, get your campaign signs, get your walking around money, make sure you've got your groups ready to come out for you. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think there is a, you really do need to think about what do voters need to change their minds in an election environment like this down ticket, probably not very much, but you know, these are lawmakers who voted to allow themselves to raise unlimited funds during session um, from uh, for their leadership packs uh, so they could cast a vote, go pick up a check within the next hour or so. So did that change the way they voted on things? Again, I just think there is a distrust of voters and their ability to make a decision cast in that bill that is not carried through with the other laws governing um, uh, lawmakers and their behavior and influences, and also these super PACs and outside groups coming in with gift cards. Um, all right, I got to get to a break. I do want to say that I thought a point you made in your column was particularly uh, important, and it's one that has been debated by those who oppose this aspect of SB 202. Handing out water to thirsty people in a voting line is hardly the same thing as more significant uh, payouts uh, to get voters uh, to the polls for your candidate. We're going to take a break right now and come back. we got a couple more court actions we'll talk about after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Andrew Gillespie, Leo Smith, Patricia Murphy joined me for today's Political Rewind. Over the weekend, I was looking back on the topics we covered on our show last week, and I realized we started virtually every show with a a story about what was happening with the special uh, grand jury, Fulton County Grand Jury, investigating interference uh, efforts to overturn the 2020 election. So I wanted to hold off this big story just for the sake of variety until a little later in the show. But Patricia Murphy... South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham on Friday was teed up to have to testify based on a district court ruling on Tuesday before the special grand jury. The, a panel, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court, which we know is one of the most conservative courts in the country, over the weekend gave him a reprieve. They said, no, uh, this has to go back to the district judge who has to... Uh, set up with attorneys the the, the uh, subjects that he can and cannot be asked about before his testimony will proceed. And we really don't know what kind of delay that could cause in getting Graham before that grand jury, right? That's right. The court has said that it wants to see that uh, decision expedited, but they said that uh, they do want to go ahead and have it established where does the speech or debate clause um, protect any of the questions and topics that Graham can be asked about in the special grand jury, if at all? He really didn't decide on whether it would grant any areas um, uh, where Graham could not be questioned, but he said this really is something that should be dealt with before they go into the grand jury, and that really gives uh, the judge overseeing it overseeing the special grand jury, um, some parameters to follow instead of ruling from the bench, you know, well, let's let's deal with this constitutional question and that constitutional question. Now, Graham has said that it was part of his legislative duties and activities to call Brad Raffensperger uh, in the days after the Georgia elections and ask, uh, uh, how would you reverse the outcome of those absentee ballots, how would one uh, change uh, the way that those were counted and cast? Um, Now, Graham has contended that he was just following up on the election, just asking questions. Raffensperger said it felt to him like intimidation and telling him to change those votes. So there's even a dispute between what they talked about and what it was supposed to mean from Graham. So it feels like this does need a little bit of... um, a little, they need to kind of kick the tires on this question a little bit before it goes into the grand jury, and it should be expedited, though. Andra? Here's my question. What uh, hearings did the Judiciary Committee hold uh, about the election kind of in the wake of this? Because if that didn't happen, I'm just going to call BS on the whole thing, right? And so I understand the need for the uh, judges to be meticulous and to make sure that they don't encroach on a senator's, you know, ability to have, you know, oversight capability and to be able to ask questions. But this person is also a political animal who is helping an ally, and so you have to be able to make this distinctions and judges are smart enough to not um, play stupid like and so you can tell when certain things are happening and so I think that there are other questions that are there all this is doing is just being dilatory because Lindsey Graham is going to have to answer questions at some point so okay there's some parameters there's some rules that's fine 
Um, but like, let us like, like, let none of us be fooled by this. You just can't hide behind the fact that you hold an official position of power to say that you're always acting in the service of that position 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because that's not true. I'm not an attorney, but I tend to listen to attorneys. <laughs> um, and they say that a lot of this jockeying is just how attorneys are fighting a fight against each other to control um, the, you know, the gamesmanship for the hearing itself. And they're trying to make sure that they don't get gotcha questions and that is not performative for the DA's benefit, for political reasons, or is not performative for the candidate themselves. So, you know, that's what this is about mostly, I think. Uh, these people will have to, they will have to have their day in court and they will have to uh, defend their decisions and actions. But uh, this is about making sure that uh, someone doesn't get gotcha kind of things. All right. But, but Leo, uh, this ruling did give Senator Graham another opportunity to take a shot at the special grand jury. He said over the weekend that this is a fishing expedition uh, being conducted by the Fulton County District Attorney. Well, it strikes me that he knows better than that. I mean, you've got you've got evidence of the Trump call to Raffensperger asking to find votes. You have evidence about the fake slate of electors. Um, and, and so what it strikes me that this does is give a, a people out there one more uh, uh, incident in which they can question the institutions uh, that for so long we've respected. No doubt. I mean, and look, this lack of trust that we have in American democratic institutions has been long, long faltering, and this only worsens it. And so certainly there are bad actors who are furthering that um, at the advice of counsel even sometimes, and not only at the advice of uh, election engineering by political consultants who just want this messaging that, hey, the whole thing's broken, always fight against it, be, you know, obstinate, be, you know, that's kind of the, the approach that, yeah, Republicans have been taking of late. And so we can continue to see people like Graham, even when they know they're going to appear, they're going to still put up that front because that's what the base wants to see. All right. I want to do one more, and I'd like to do this kind of briefly. One more court decision, and this one comes from the United States Supreme Court. It has to do with a long-running and I think kind of convoluted issue about the Public Service Commission elections in Georgia. Patricia, Patricia as I understand it, and as I know, uh, there are five uh, PSC commissioners. They are elected to districts across the state, but it is voters statewide who vote for them in each of the districts. And this case has been about uh, the concern that that setup has disenfranchised black voters, uh, particularly in two districts where they do not get the chance uh, to vote perhaps for candidates who look more like them. And the Supreme Court, after back and forth with other courts, has decided they can't have the election for those two PSC commissioners at all in November. Have I got that right? Yes, that is right. And you're exactly right. This is extremely convoluted. It is um, has been the subject of back and forth um, for quite some time. Um, but the argument, as you said, is that if you have 
um, a statewide vote for what are essentially district wide candidates that cuts off the input from the voices of those people inside those districts. And so I, all you really have to do is look at the makeup of the Georgia congressional delegation um, up until 2020 to see that um, minority candidates obviously have a have a kind of a reduced chance when it's a statewide electorate versus a district electorate that is um, carved up to represent a specific community. And so um, this is a court ruling that um, really does essentially uh, deal with that at the Supreme Court level. Now, what happens next? I really do not know. I have to be honest with you. This is not what I've been following very, very carefully. So I'm not sure if Leo or Andra um, can weigh in on this and, and add some insight. Well, apparently the state has decided it is not going to attempt to get these ballots, uh, races on the ballot at all. They're going to go with what the Supreme Court said. Uh, Tim Eccles, the vice chair of the PSC, who's one of those uh, incumbents, and Fitz Johnson, who's a commissioner, will remain in their offices who knows when. I don't know the answer to when there might be a special election or whatever to replace them, but the state, these people will not be on the ballot. And Andrew, before we move on, I do think the reason this does have significance is it is about disenfranchisement of minority voters. Yeah. So, I mean, I think probably the way to help voters understand this and even to understand what the possibilities are now post this is to think about sort of what the districting claims are. So, it, you know, is illegal in the Voting Rights Act to create a voting system that is going to systematically deny um, my covered minorities, the ability to be able to elect candidates of their choice. So if you keep on having an electoral system in an area with a lot of black people, for instance, and no black people ever get elected, people are going to argue that there's some kind of fix in it, right? And there might be some Voting Rights Act sort of support to that particular claim. And one of the ways that we've seen this happen, the case that I think about is actually a federal district case um, out of Mobile in the early 1980s that looked at uh, the city um, of Mobile. So uh, Blacks were a minority of the population, but a sizable minority. They lived in a particular part of town, but city elections were always, um, city council elections were always uh, 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 at large. And so under this at-large system, Blacks could have elected somebody from a district where they would have been the decisive vote, but when they have to run statewide and all and there's racially polarized voting, they can never get a Black person elected. And so this is the same thing that's being argued here, is that by forcing, one, people to actually live in particular districts and then having everybody run statewide, that's actually not just disadvantaging Democrats, but in this particular case, it is disadvantaging Black folks um, in particular. And so what I suspect uh, the plaintiffs in this case are going to push for is this idea to move the PSC to being an all district where only the people who live in the district areas have the right to vote for their candidates, not everybody voting mm -hmm. in the state. Uh, thank you uh, for, for that. Uh, that's the court cases we're going to look at today. Uh, we want to get a break out of the way right now, but when we come back, I want to talk a bit about the Herschel Walker campaign. Trisha Murphy has been uh, visiting with people who are Walker supporters, and I'm be interested in hearing what she uh, has to report back about the people who are enthusiastic about him. Uh, we'll do that a little bit more when Political Rewind continues. Patricia Murphy, in your Weekend Political Insider column, you tell us that you got a call 
uh, from someone listening to your Politically Georgia podcast, uh, Fran from New Jersey. And Fran was confounded, you say, by the possibility that Herschel Walker's in a close race against Raphael Warnock. Honestly, from completely neutral territory, is this candidate really serious? Fran asked you. It just blows our minds up there. Uh, so you started your column with that and then talked about going to an event in Kennesaw where you got a taste of the enthusiastic support of people for Herschel Walker. Uh, start us off in a conversation about this. Uh, yes, when I met, I told Fran then, and I wrote in my column again, yes, Fran, this is serious. <laughs> Herschel Walker is a serious candidate um, for a lot of reasons. Number one is because this is a battleground state, and I think any any Republican who runs um, and has the chance to flip the Senate from Democrat to Republican is going to be a viable candidate for a number of, um, especially for Republican voters. Um, but then also Herschel Walker just has a level of personally devoted, uh, some of them are fans, some of them are believers, um, people who have known him. He's been famous for 40 years here in Georgia, longer than that, even though he hasn't lived here most of that time. Um, there is just a level of celebrity and adoration for Herschel Walker that reminds me a lot of covering Donald Trump, actually. And um, I went to an event. It was a Women for Herschel event. I'm like, oh, I've, I've got to see what a Women for Herschel event looks like. It was 500 people on a Wednesday night in August. So let me tell you, I don't know other candidates who could get that kind of turnout. So um, yes, Fran, it's very real. <laughs> and um, these were candidates, these were, these were voters, um, most of them were very religious, very deeply religious, felt extremely connected to Herschel Walker, who himself is quite religious, even though Raphael Warnock is a pastor. And so the dynamics to me are fascinating that this is a group of people that nothing that is said or done will change their support for Walker. I, I was interested in the religious component of what you talked about, it because it reminds me of the way uh, evangelicals, some evangelicals talk about Donald Trump. You've got quotes from peop uh, people um, uh, who were calling out to the stage where Herschel was, this is his time, Lord God, uh, one of the women in the audience said, the greater one lives in Herschel Walker, uh, said another as uh, Herschel was on the stage. So, Leo, talk about this enthusiasm for the Republican candidate for Senate. Well, I mean, that there might be people who don't disconnect faith from the public square on the right, and that that has become a fervent call amongst the right. Uh, that's not news to us, I don't think. As a matter of fact, tomorrow night, as you know, I'm hosting Faith Forward Democracy with the Carter Center, where we're going to talk about faith and politics and whether or not faith can save democracy. These people think they can by praying for someone like Herschel Walker. They really believe so. And they look at, um, you know, they also believe that there are people in the church um, who might even wear a vested collar um, that may not actually represent God in their mind. <laughs> so, so that is a, a thing happening out there in the field. These women, uh, Ginger Howard, the RNC committee woman who, you know, opened and hosted, moderated the entire session, Ginger, Ginger is a very evangelical woman. And so you can imagine that was more like a faith rally than it was anything else. 
there's, I mean, there are a lot of things that are at play. So one, I am not surprised, um, you know, that the idea that people would in, 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 in invoke faith in talking about Herschel Walker and that they are drawing contrast between Walker and Warnock, despite the fact that Warnock is a pastor. Um, uh, Warnock is a Christian, but he is not identifiable as being evangelical. And I say this as somebody who is evangelical and who grew up in a black church where people had split away from black churches like Ebenezer. So this was like, we were in those churches and we didn't find God there, right? Nobody told us how to get saved. They told me how to get the right hand of fellowship. And so, I mean, there are these big differences. And so Walker is very legible, particularly to white evangelicals. Um, I know Alveda King was, you know, in the audience. Um, and I think King would sort of ha would talk about a similar type of transformation. Um, Herschel Walker is somebody who, if, you know, you were like me and you occasionally grew up watching the 700 Club, you saw Herschel Walker. So, like, nobody is questioning his faith in the way that I think a lot of people are rationalizing that Donald Trump has a faith. Um, you know, there are people who, you know, you know, he got the imprimatur of having certain people say, well, we prayed with him. We heard him say the sinner's prayer. And then the rest of us who weren't privileged to be in the room are like, yeah, but we see no fruit. So we don't know what's going on there. So we don't believe you. Right. That's a very different thing than, than what's going on with Donald Trump. The, the similarity is part the cult of personality, but part the high name recognition that they're able to translate. And what Walker is doing is actually playing into what my uncle calls country dumbness, right? So I have the same conversations uh, that Fran had uh, with Patricia with my own relatives. Um, and there is this idea of saying that I may talk slow, but I'm not as dumb as I look and I share your values. And that actually overrides Raphael Warnock's mellifluousness. And it also um, overrides the sophistication that uh, Warnock actually brings to conversations. They'd rather have somebody who uh, sees things kind of simply and black and white and will call shots the way they see it, as opposed to seeing somebody who's going to think with sophistication and nuance. Patricia, I think that Andra just made a point that I, I hadn't put in as articulate a way as she has. But, you know, we, we, there's been a lot of focus on whether Herschel Walker is going to debate or not debate. And so far, he's playing games about debating. He just apparently said he will not participate in a Macon debate. Uh, he's already picked a different Savannah debate than the one that the Warnock campaign has chosen. So he's clearly not anxious to do debates. But I think Andra makes a really interesting point. Um, although he has made some just confounding statements about things like evolution and, and other comments that are just are inexplicable and that in, independent voters may find troubling, um, not as base. Um, there is a down-home quality to him that I think really counters, uh, in some ways, the sophistication of a Raphael Warnock. Um, when I've seen some of what he says, um, my reaction is there are people out there who are going to find what Andre's talking about. Just simple, straightforward, they'll call it truth, right? Yes. And um, Andre put it so incredibly succinctly and so incredibly well. I also, Andre, have never actually heard anybody make that kind of distinction among different um, types of black religious voters and how they would be approaching two different um, black religious candidates. I find, I find that so fascinating. Um, but in terms of the way that Herschel Walker approaches an audience, he is a, he's been a motivational speaker for the last 30 years. He um, speaks also to veterans groups, police groups, uh, 
particularly groups uh, dealing with mental health challenges. Um, and he is a, a just an unbelievably seasoned speaker. However, he is also from Wrightsville. He has not changed his Wrightsville accent. So he feels like the same person who grew up in Wrightsville and has gone through all these different stages of his life. It just reads as very authentic and extremely charming in that room. And he just, I mean, these women, standing ovation doesn't even cover how much they wanted to hear what he was saying. Leo? And that plays right into what Dr. Gillespie and Patricia just brings up, right into your pointing out that he, didn't, he you know, turned down the Macon debate. The Savannah debate is what he is really sort of playing a hand in and saying, I want a Savannah debate and I want it here. But what we're not picking up on and what we need to know, he's trying to, you know, emphasize his strength as Patricia. He wants a rally-like atmosphere that plays to the kinds of audiences that he's been successful in anyway. Well, who wouldn't recommend that for their client? You know, so he's trying to focus on his strengths rather than his weakness. He's not going to go into Dr. Gillespie's classroom and have a debate on politics. He wants to talk about people's hearts and minds. And that is in, 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 in a town hall style, you know, boisterous, raucous, invite everybody to the party kind of you know, evangelical rally type. That's what he's trying to do in Savannah. Um, I think that's an important point. Uh, so, um, uh, Patricia, uh, that's right. The debate that, that of the th there are three debates that have kind of been set, um, Atlanta, uh, Macon, and uh, Savannah. The Savannah debate that the Warnock people have uh, agreed to would be in a studio with no audience. And as uh, Leo points out, what the Walker campaign has agreed to is one with a big studio audience that gives him just what he wants. Well, the Warnock campaign doesn't really want to go that way. So are we going to see any debates at all? You know, I don't know if we're going to, because the Warnock team seems pretty dug in as well. And so um, we have here two candidates who say they're willing to debate, yet no debate on the books. And I guess the question is, do you want a sort of a performance, which is what you're going to get with a live audience, sort of hooting and hollering, or do you want a sort of a, a deep in the weeds debate, which is what you're going to get in a soundproof studio, just getting sort of like pummeled by questions from reporters. And so um, you understand the appeal for each candidate's team. But to me, um, it will be a terrible shame if we don't get a debate between these two because we need one. Andra, real quickly, um, I, that brings me back to thinking about a George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton town hall debate, which the Bush people really didn't want, but found themselves having to accept a big town hall meeting where Bill Clinton's ability to relate to people, walk up to them, feel their pain came across so clearly, and poor George H.W. Bush just couldn't bring that touch into play, and on top of it, he looked at his watch a couple times, and people thought he couldn't wait to get out of there, Andra. We got about 30 seconds on this. I, I remember that. I showed the debate where you have, I showed that part of the debate where you have the young black woman who says you can't feel our pain, basically, um, uh, to my students. Uh, so, yes, this comes through. I don't know if there'll be some compromise where you get one with an audience and one without an audience, but... Uh, Walker, I, I think, needs to be able to uh, say things plainly to people and at least demonstrate that he does have a passing knowledge of policy. Andre Gillespie sums up 
uh, gets the last word on today's show. Thank you all for starting us off so well on this uh, kind of dreary Monday. Professor Andre Gillespie, Leo uh, Smith, and uh, Patricia Murphy, thanks for being here today. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow, of course, and I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>